Hello, and welcome to the Collider.com podcast. I'm Collider.com senior editor Matt Goldberg, and with me is deputy editor Adam Chitwood. Howdy, folks. On today's episode, we will be talking about Mindhunter Season 2. The first half of the episode will keep it pretty spoiler-free, and then we'll get more specific in the second half of the show. We will also then finish up with uh, Recently Watched, uh, and we don't have any new reader hot takes because we're recording this just a few days since our last episode. We're just doing two episodes this week because we feel like it, and we also want to talk Mindhunter. So we will have Recently Watched, and uh, if you have any more reader hot takes, always send those in uh, through through reviewing this podcast on iTunes. But to jump in to Mindhunter Season 2... Um, I was really excited for the show. It's been two years since Mindhunter season one. It's been a long time. It has like, it doesn't, you know, you, I think a lot, most Netflix shows, it's, it's a one a year thing, you know, yeah. pretty normal schedule. Um, but we had to wait a little while for season two. Season because two. Most Netflix shows are not run by David Fincher. This is true. 50 takes per setup. <laughs> yeah. Um, but Mindhunter season one ended on a, a kind of a cliffhanger where, um, uh, Jonathan Groff's character, uh, uh, whose name, oh God, Holden Ford, Holden Ford. Thank you. I blanked on his name, uh, <laughs> had kind of a, had a panic attack after meeting with Ed Kempler. And so it was, we're sort of up in the air, like what's going to happen to, to Ford, uh, what's going to happen to this division. And in some ways I feel like season two kind of feels like a soft reboot of sorts. Like, yeah. Not, you know, there are certain issues that are brought up and they're kind of, like, they're used as a springboard for season two, but it's not like, it feels like season two also fixes a lot of problems. Uh, Not that to say that season one was bad, but it does, it recognizes there were shortcomings in season one that could be made a lot stronger. And so, for instance, uh, I thought a really smart uh, change was changing the FBI over their boss, essentially, and going from someone who was really skeptical of their work to someone who was very in favor of their work, uh, played by Michael Cerveris uh, from, from Fringe, uh, Fringe Reunion. Um, and he, I liked the fact because it gave, I think rather than creating sort of this obvious friction about like, they don't understand that this is the cutting edge. Someone who says, I do understand this is the cutting edge, but now you have to deliver and you have to deliver in a way that I can justify to my bosses. And I think that's, I think that pressure feels a lot more organic rather than, because at some point you have to be like, well, if their boss doesn't believe in what they're doing, why doesn't he just shut them down? Like that, that uh, it leads to that question. Um, So I think pushing out the old boss and bringing in this new guy adds a lot of really great dramatic tension. Um, and then the other thing I thought was great was they gave uh, uh, Wendy um, Carr uh, a character. <laughs> I, <laughs> I think that was helpful. She, I mean, well, see, in the season one, like, it's not that she's bad. Like, I thought Anna Torv did a, did a fine job. Um, but she's just kind of this academic. She's like the third part of this trio. Like, she's supposed to be like a major character. But they're not really sure what to do with her. And then in this season, they gave her a really fleshed out individual life about her desires and what she wanted and what she was afraid of. And she got a really great story this uh, this year. And I was really happy with that. Uh, I was still a little underwhelmed by her story this year. Really? All right. Well, let's, let's yeah. d- dive into that. What? what it's, what? it's better. Um but first, I wanted to address the the whole notion of it feeling like a reboot, because I think there's a very specific reason for that. Mm. And that's because David Fincher fired the showrunner mm. <laughs> and became the showrunner himself. Um, you'll notice in the credits, this is created by Joe Pinhall. Uh, and he wrote, uh, I think, at least half of the first season. He's this English writer uh, and he created the series. It's based on, you know, the John Douglas book, Mindhunter. And so for season one, he wrote all the episodes and then he hired two female writers who were from Mad Men to be kind of the LA based writers while he could stay in England. Um, and they ended up writing a number of the episodes and they worked on set writing it. But Holt McCallany gave an interview during, like after season one and essentially said that like Joe Penhall was 
basically fired and Fincher kind of took over and like steered the direction of the show. So for season two, season two has none of the same writers as season one. So it is being, it is an entirely new writing you also, staff. You also noticed it has, with the exception of Fincher, none of the same directors as season yes. one. None of the same directors as season one. Um, uh, I, I heard that Fincher may have directed more of season one than it appears that he directed. Um, but I think for all intents and purposes, and I wrote about this during season one, is that this is a show where the showrunner is David Fincher. The showrunner is the director. The principal writer on season two, uh, a woman named Courtney Miles, she was, well, this is her first writing credit. She was the first assistant director on Gone Girl and Moneyball and Mine, the first season of Mindhunter. So she was Fincher's first assistant director. Joshua Donnan, I think, is also an assistant director who is one of the um, the co-writers uh, um, of, uh, or no, he was an, he's an executive producer of House of Cards. Um, so essentially, Fincher kind of like pulled people out of the bullpen and said, like, you take this on. And Liz Hanna was also on the writing staff this year. She wrote the post, and she's been pretty vocal on Twitter, saying that Courtney Miles was essentially the head writer this season. She did a lot of the research and dove into a lot of that stuff. Um, but if you'll remember the scene where Wendy's on a date uh, and she mentions how like she likes to get to the movies early, she can, she, she can get her popcorn and get her soda. Um, Liz Hanna is credited with writing that uh, uh, episode and someone like said like kudos to her. And she said, if she recalls, that was a Fincher edition. So Fincher is also writing on the show kind of. Um, so I think that's a really interesting distinction and in that like season one was kind of created by one person and then executed by another and then kind of shifted throughout. Whereas I think season two has been Fincher's vision all the way through um, led by this brand new writing staff. And that's where we get some kind of these new colors and new shades. And like you said, kind of a reset. And I think I agree. I think that was really smart. Not only is it historically accurate that the FBI kind of started uh, supporting the behavioral science unit, but it puts the characters in a really interesting place where, like you said, now they have to deliver. Um, but I think uh, also, I mean, with the Wendy situation, I think that, I mean, it's it's interesting, but she still feels like she's on the outside. And I know that's too, that's purposeful. Um, you know, when Holden and Tench are, are sent down to Atlanta, she and, uh, gosh, what's the other guy's name? Greg. Greg. Um, the guy who's always being left out of all the meetings. Uh, because he and, sucks. <laughs> yes, he does suck. Uh, they go and conduct uh, an interview by themselves, and it's like, oh, this is going to be a really cool new storyline, but then she's kind of uh, kneecapped, essentially, and pulled out of that situation, which it's true to form, and like it's true to the period, and probably true to what would happen to this character. Um, but it just puts her back on the sidelines, kind of. I do agree she gets much more of an internal life in season two than she got in season one. And I think the relationship he ha she has with uh, a girlfriend this season is is an interesting development. But I still don't feel like she's on the level of Holden and Tench in terms of uh, that that character development. I would counter to say that I would say she is on the level of Holden and Tench because all three storylines, all three individual characters and what they're going through this season speaks to the speaks to the central irony of this season and what they've really honed in on, which is that you have three people who are in the behavioral sciences unit and they don't understand human behavior, um, <laughs> which is, or rather they're so focused on trying to understand the, the be human behavior of serial killers that they're failing to miss the behavior in their own lives. And so for, for Wendy, she doesn't understand the behavior of her girlfriend. She doesn't, yeah. you know, she doesn't understand that relationship, that dynamic. She doesn't understand someone who's trying to be, who's trying to live basically two lives. One is a, a, as a sort of an, an out and proud lesbian, but someone who's also hiding that side of herself so that she, cause she doesn't want her kid taken away. Um, then you have Tench, uh, who is, doesn't, you know, again, human behavior wise, literally pleading with his son at one point in this, this season, <laughs> tell me what you're thinking yeah. for the love of God. It's <laughs> like, a heartbreaking scene. It's and a I heartbreaking scene. Cause I'm like tension. I'm like, I want to, like, is he going to be like, this is, uh, this is creepy, creepy Glenn of Mindhunter um, to call back to Mad Men. Like this character who is just his son. It's like, is he going to be a psychopath? Like, is he, is the end game of this series? <laughs> they're hunting his son. Right, Ugh. which I would hate. I would think that'd be terrible. But <laughs> yeah, I think, that's a, I think I don't think that doesn't feel like I don't think yeah, that doesn't seem like a move that they would make. But I do think it 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 speaks to the sort of 
in the sort of inscrutability of just sort of like he doesn't understand his son. Again, he's his father, but you know, he is adopt the son is adopted, but he does like he doesn't understand his son and he also doesn't really understand his wife. Um, he doesn't understand the toll that it's taking on her. So the behavior in his own family. And then for Ford, he doesn't understand a the politics anyone. going on. He doesn't understand anyone. That's the funniest. <laughs> so cool. He under he only under seems to understand serial killers. <laughs> Even though he's not like, it's not so far as like, um, uh, you know, Hannibal, where it's like I empathize with them so much and it's kind of romantic and weird. It doesn't go that far, but he, he understands serial killers and what they want, but he doesn't understand, he doesn't understand his superiors. He doesn't understand the people that are, you know, want his help. He doesn't understand anyone. He's just, he is a little robotic. Um, and I think it was very smart to cut the girlfriend thing. If you yeah. could you could jump into season two never knowing that Holden had a girlfriend in season one. It is that unimportant. Well, because it was also it was a dead kind of a dead end from the start. You kind of knew from that opening scene in season one. Like you kind of got the sense of who Holden Ford was. And so it was like this is not gonna last. Um, right. So I mean I'm sure they'll try and pull that back. One thing I really loved about this season is that it changed protagonists. Holden Ford is not the protagonist of season two. Bill Tench is. He's the person who most of the focus is on in terms of interior life and going back home. And that's not to say that Holden Ford is not a main character. He is. But whereas in season one, we spent a lot of time going back home with Holden and looking and delving into Holden's interior life, we're not really doing that much in season two. Most of what we see of Holden in season two is him on the case and working with uh, those around him. Yeah, there's very uh, little personal life for, to the point where it's a little distracting because you keep thinking like the panic attack is going to be like the bomb that drops. Yeah. Like, it's going to go off. And then it's just kind of brushed aside and forgotten. It doesn't really come back, which is interesting. I wonder if that was planned or if that was just something they kind of dropped. Um, I know that Holt McCallany, who plays Bill Tench, has said that uh, you know, the scripts kind of evolve or the season kind of evolves as, the, as they go. And like I said, that that scene in uh, um, between Wendy and her girlfriend, it, it sounds like, you know, that Fincher just kind of changed stuff on the day or maybe in the script. Um, but I think it, it works in the show's favor. This is a an odd couple kind of sort situation. Um, the pairing of Ford and Tench who created this unit and now kind of hate each other. Um or they tolerate each other, I should say. But they're there not. Is they're a not. Lot of un- yeah. There's not. There's not friends. That's yeah. that's important. There's no. One of the things that that's really striking is, is you know, Mindhunter carries sort of the 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 vibe of a procedural, but it doesn't play by the sort of comfortable rules of a procedural. Like it's it's got that same sort of law and order vibe where you know we're going to interrogate, we're going to investigate, but these characters do not get along. You're not going to like, they don't, they don't really like, like I, you don't, these are characters that are like, we have to find a way to work together, but we are not friends. So you have alliances and you have, you know, mutual interest, but it's not any, there's surprisingly, again, for people that study psychopaths, there's not a lot of empathy between the three main characters. Well, and that was true of season one too, because I remember- the personal victories between themselves are few and far between because one of the most iconic shots from season one is them in that elevator where they're all smiling when they finally get the approval of their boss. And then it's immediately undercut in the next episode (laughs) when things start to go to shit already. Um, So like the, this is not a show where like the team like high fives at the end and, you know, we solved the case. We hunted them on. Let's all all hunt. Let's have drinks together at the, at the local bar. Yeah, they don't hang out. Uh, like, Wendy, honestly, the only time Wendy is genuinely interested in Ford this season is when he tells her about his panic attack and show she's interested in him as a patient, kind of, and not as a friend. Um, and maybe as a colleague, too, because she's worried it will upset the research. Um, but I found that very funny. Uh, and, you know, Tench doesn't care, do- doesn't trust Ford enough to tell him about what's going on at home with him. Um, which to me is the most compelling part of the season is Bill Tinch at home, like mm-hmm. what he's dealing with at home, what he's dealing with, with his son, what he's dealing with, with his wife. Um, and the wife character is a little underwritten every, every scene she's in, she's just kind of smoking and looking out the window and shaking. It's, uh, it's know? a, it, I think saying she's a little underwritten is a pretty generous <laughs> take. She's, it's a bad is. character. It's a bad <laughs> character who exists only to sort of serve, uh, Tench's perspective. 
What about me, Bill? What about you? What about me, Bill? What about me? <laughs> so, uh, but I, I, you know, it's one of those things where, like, it, yes, it's in service of the Bill Tench character, but the Bill Tench character is so compelling and his story is so interesting that I think it works. Um, I can and the way I can the way it. that sorry what I can forgive it. I agree. Like, yeah. it works well. And the way that it resolves or doesn't resolve at the end of the season, I think, sex sets it up really interestingly going forward. Uh, assuming Netflix doesn't cancel this. Oh yeah, Here's we can definitely point. talk a little bit about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, I mean, the uh, you said like about like the it carries with it the um, thing of a like a procedural, but it's not like a it it doesn't have the same satisfaction as a procedural does. A case doesn't get solved at the end of every episode. More often than not, the interviews in this season are very unsatisfying uh just in terms of like resolution or understanding the killer um you have the two hicks that holden and um gosh what's the other character's name um uh gosh i'm blinking right now um oh what's the what's the uh detective's name in atlanta that he works with oh i never caught his name remember (laughs) i know i I was like i like that guy i wish i knew what his name was yeah he's great um yeah gosh uh i'll come back to it uh i'll remember it um but ford is completely uninterested because these two guys are just uh you know idiots and and to ford they're just really kind of like below um below what he deems worthy of him not just that but he's so obsessed with the profile like he's like we have to follow the pro- like he he is he is completely invested in his profile and his profile turns out to be right. Um, but Jim Barney, that's his name, Jim Barney. Yes, um, the profile turns out to be right, but again, it comes at the cost of a lot of other things. Yes, yeah, and but I, I think it's also uh, like about his narcissism. And a lot of the show is about narcissism and thinking you're the smartest person in the room or thinking you know everything. And so you get to those interviews and you don't really get insight into um, like why they killed. Um, and Ford is so obsessed with the profile, like you said, but also so narcissistic in that like this guy's an idiot. He doesn't really care with the guy who says, you know, he speaks six languages or whatever. Um, that interview is clearly going nowhere. But then Jim like figures out, oh, if I treat him like a child, like I can give him some candy. Uh, I can get him to open up, but even still, it's not like it's not like Ed Kemper, where you're getting these gruesome details, and you're like, "Wow!" I, you know, in a weird way, I feel like we've moved past the gruesome details. I yep. feel like those were kind of a season one marker, and I think the fascination in season two is not so much action, but motive, because yep. motive is far darker and far more inscrutable, and like that's what they're trying to get to. They're not about like how did you do it. Um, they're trying to get to what drove you to do it and deciphering motive. Um, and I think like the son of Sam interview is like one of the highlights of this, uh, of this season. And I think it's the only one, unless I'm remembering incorrectly, it's the only one where you do get a kind of clear motive. The other ones, like either they give a motive, but it's kind of muddled as to like, is, are they being factual? Are they being true? Or, um, like that strangler, um, guy who killed the nurses and they were trying to figure out if he's killing along racial lines it's just so like he was very dumb in what he thought yeah he was trying to do. I, I mean in that again in that first season i think there was a lot of attention paid to like look at these sort of alluring killers yeah um which i think is you know it sets a baseline like oh these killers are interesting that now it makes sense why these fbi profilers want to do it but in season two season two is like okay well if you're on board we can't just simply make this the glorify the serial killer of the week show yeah, and so I think it's a smart move for Mindhunter to move away from the serial killers a bit and leave them kind of unsatisfying and make it more about what do these interviews say about our main characters. So while like the Charlie Manson scene is really good, that scene is all about how it speaks to Tench and t- yeah. what Tench's uh, tension is in the scene. It's not really about I hope you un- leave leave this interview with a better understanding of Charlie Manson. Although, you know what? I kind of did. Yes, I did leave it. Yeah, no, I mean, it actually did. It's a great performance by uh, Damon Harriman. But um, it's not, it's not like there's no Ed Kemper figure, um, which I think is, again, to the show's benefit, especially after seeing something like uh, 
um, extremely vile uh, or wicked. Oh, what, yeah. yeah, seeing something like that, which attempts to sort of break down Ted Bundy, but instead just gets drawn into his atmosphere and kind of makes him alluring again, which I think is kind of gross and ignores the weight of the kill of the killing. Um, I think it's fine to do it again in the first season for Mindhunter because you're trying to get into their, you're, you're trying to follow these people into their headspace. But I think you don't want the show to be like, hey, aren't serial killers neat? Yeah. Yeah. And it gets to, um, uh, I think, a really interesting juxtaposition there is BTK, mm-hmm. um, who, you know, opened almost every scene in season one. And in season two, we actually spent some time with him. And it's interesting in that he's directly contradicting the profile that Tension Ford are putting together. They're like, no, no, no. These serial killers, they have to lead. They, there's no way that they have a wife. There's no way that they have a family. There's no way that they can carry on normal lives from what everything we've learned. And then you see PTK, who is doing that, but you're also seeing the struggle to do it. Mm-hmm. And like the, the well, toll it kind of takes on him to lead those two lives. Sure. I think, again, that speaks to the, the show's central irony about here's a group of people that pride themselves on understanding human behavior and they don't. You yeah. know, they are again, the, the narcissism to think that like, oh, I have the answers. Right. Well, and just and that's sort of the, the central tragedy of it, which is that you can't know anyone. And this notion that if, oh, if only we understood people, if we if we could get as as Tench put into season one, how crazy thinks if they could get ahead of it, that would be safe. Yeah. And season two says you're not going to be safe. You're you're going to, you know, I mean, the thing is, is even with the. The, the the I mean, when you look at the profile that they come up with for the killer, the Atlanta child uh, killer, that profile does it. I mean, what did it do? What did it accomplish? <laughs> yeah. Like, did it did it help? Did it get them to the to the killer any faster? Was it any match for the politics wound up in the city? Like, it's sort of. I mean, it it the futility of what they're doing really starts bearing down on you. Well, it also bolstered racial profiling. Yeah. Like it narrowed the, it was very bad. Um, and you know, I didn't know much about the Atlanta child killers case and, and didn't know that, I mean, it was resolved, but kind of not resolved. Um, which I think is interesting. And so, mm-hmm. and we can talk more about it when we get into the spoiler portion of spoiler portion of the podcast. Cause I think there's a lot there, yes. but I think that it, it kind of takes over towards the end. And I think the direction, the direction this season across the board, I think is stronger than season one. Um, not that the direction of season one was bad, um, but I really, really love what Carl Franklin did with these final four episodes in the show. Um, I think he kind of, he kind of takes over. And I mean, who's to say what, uh, I mean, there, uh, again, Holt McCallany has said that like, there's a lot of reshooting that goes on on the show. I think Fincher himself reshoots a lot of things, but from like what we can see and what we know, I think Carl Franklin just did a bang up job of those final four episodes. Yeah, I agree. I think he did a great job. Uh, I think Andrew Dominic did a great job. Um, yeah. I think Fincher put together one of the best scenes he's ever done. Oh, in the car, s- the car, the car so in, s- in episode two, where uh, the survivor of the BTK attack um, and they never show his face. Uh, it's just masterful. Like, for 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 a scene where you have very limited amount of room of where you can put the camera uh, to avoid showing certain things and to but to get inside these characters' heads, uh, it's just it's incredible. It's really tremendous. I was my jaw was kind of on the floor, yeah. and I was also just super tense. And yeah. you don't like yeah like the the shot progression. I want to look at that scene a lot closer, but the shot progression of like showing the shotgun in the back mm-hmm. and starting to put that unease on you of like, I don't necessarily know what's going to happen here and what's going to go on here. Right. And it's just three guys talking in a car. Right. And even the tension is like, okay, I'm pretty sure tension isn't going to get murdered here, but like yeah. what, what could go wrong? What could be revealed? And even when you remember like Mindhunter is not, even it's, even though it's a show that discusses violence in detail, it is not itself a violent show. It doesn't, no. it doesn't have graphic, it doesn't depict graphic violence. It's all about telling you about it, um, but actually using that to it, its, its advantage. Well, I think you said something that uh, was spot on, which is that like it's the closest thing we'll ever get to Zodiac, the TV series. Yes. 
because um, it's all about the toll that that hunt takes on you and it's all about the grunt work the leg work the investigative work like there you see three murders in zodiac but they're all within the first 45 minutes or so i think mm-hmm. um and two of them are pretty graphic but after that it's just detective work it's detective work and it's detective work that's about plugging away and not getting the answers that you want yeah. You know, yeah. like that's the, that's the other thing. Again, the procedure, it's, it, Mindhunter is a great subversion of the procedural because in the typical procedural, we will get an answer. We will get a killer. You know, the guest star of the week is usually the guy that did it. Um, he goes to jail or he doesn't, but they, they found him. They got him. You know, it's him. There is justice in the world. And Mindhunter says, I'm going to give you that framework of we are trying to solve a case and put it all together but you're not going to get easy answers. And you're also going to run up against things like politics and uh, culture and things where, yes, it would be nice if we could draw a straight line from crime to punishment. But in fact, we will not. It will be very difficult to get from one to the next. Well, I think that's really present in the Atlanta child murders Mm -hmm. case where they finally, they have to come up against the government and local politics and uh, the different like race like the the gall of holden to think that he can run a racial experiment in baltimore and think that it will apply in atlanta (laughs) be like no 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 i did it here and it was fine it's like these are different cities with different racial politics and different histories and people interact with each other and going to your point about the narcissism i mean he's working with 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 jim this whole season and he doesn't think he doesn't really think to ask jim any questions (laughs) it's like hey You're black. You've worked in this community. Like, you know, maybe you know something I don't, but, but Holden cannot get over himself. Well, and Jim's the one who's onto something in in terms of it being uh, possibly a a larger deal than what they ultimately land on. Um, And that's, that's his legwork that leads to those loose threads that uh, kind of wrap up the season. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, (laughs) it's, it's a very, it's yeah. There, there's a lot going on there, especially in those final four episodes. You can definitely divide season two into sort of the first half and then the final four episodes. Do you want to go into spoilers and talk about these final four? Yeah, let's talk about the final four episodes. So if you haven't watched Mindhunter yet, get on it. I I, I was addicted. I binged it way more than I thought. I thought like, I'll, yeah, watch, I'll watch like three episodes today, three episodes tomorrow, three episodes the day after, and I'll be done. And then like... Five and like three in the morning. I'm like, okay, just one more episode, <laughs> just one more. It's so good. Um, I so finished it in a day and a half. Same, same. <laughs> I was like, yep, burning through it. Um, but I was gonna say so. But if you haven't finished Mine Hunter, just finish it. It's okay. So we're gonna go into spoilers now. So what's interesting? So in in the final four episodes, Holden believes that the killer is a black guy because. They, their Baltimore experience, experiment was like, well, a black child will never get into a car with a white guy. Um, so clearly, Pull out your dick. Show us you're not a cop. Show us, yeah. <laughs> show us your dick. That was funny. Um, but, you know, and then so he just, he, and then he doesn't like, and it, the, the kicker is, is, yes, his profile turns out to be right. But at the same time, his profile did nothing to actually catch the guy. Like, no. I, I find the futility of it darkly comic. That yeah. what got him was they figured out, they looked at the areas of where the crimes were committed. And yes, there was, it's not that their work was completely worthless. Like they knew about killers coming back, you manipulating the media. They understood some of the broad strokes that were important, but it's not like, oh, we've narrowed it down and this is our guy. Um, and also they just did shoddy police work when they got him. <laughs> like yes. they didn't, they didn't get the rope. They didn't get like... That's the thing. Like, again, you have these characters that pride themselves on being very smart and they do some really stupid shit. Well, and I also thought it was really funny that every time they go to the chief of police, like it happens three or four times where they're like, all right, we have a plan. And I'm like, okay, this is where they do it. This is the plan that catches the guy and it doesn't work. No, not <laughs> only that, I the, the role of the chief of police is like one of my favorites this season because every scene with him is like, I don't know if I can spare the manpower. <laughs> it says it like four times. I don't know if I can spare the manpower. And well, also- By the end, you feel it though. Like you start to feel like- because at the beginning, you're like, give Holden and Ford whatever they need. These are the experts. They know what they're doing. But by the end, you're like, oh, yeah, like this costs money. It costs overtime. It's been going on for months. 
like I just have like he's right. Like I don't know how much longer they can keep looking for this guy. Well, and also they're kind of caught between a rock and a hard place because you have you have this investigation into these murders, but also first the victims are black, which you know. So that community has to really rally its power in a way that a white community would just accept that they, you know, one white child goes missing and everything shuts down, but you have 28, you know, black children go missing and it's like, well, maybe we can do something. Um, But then the other part of it is that you have the, the bit, the, the politicians being like, we don't really want, like, we don't want to sound any alarms because it will hurt the business interests that are coming to Atlanta, uh, which I thought was such a great observation and really chilling as, as an Atlantan. Um, I mean, this happened before my family even came here, but, uh, it's still like the Atlanta is now like sort of an economic hub, but like, how did it get there? Well, we didn't talk too much about all the murders, (laughs) Like, yeah, it's, it's, it's grim. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, really dark stuff. Um, and I think the, the, another one of my favorite aspects of the season is the mothers, the families, mm. um, the families of the victims, which is something that season one didn't get into at all. Um, mostly cause they weren't working on like active cases or anything, but I think that was a really necessary addition this season was to see it through someone else's eyes. Cause we're seeing it through the FBI's eyes and, Obviously, like they can have some empathy and they can uh, feel sad about uh, these things that happened, um, unless you're Holden Ford, in which case you feel nothing. Um, uh, but it was nice to be reminded of that human element of it. Uh, and you know, at the end, when they they've caught they were uh, they've caught and um, uh, arrested Wayne Williams and uh, accused him of these crimes. Holden Ford, uh, you know, comes, uh, standing tall into the mothers and they're like, you didn't like, you didn't pin the murders on our children. Like you haven't found who, who actually did this. Right. You don't know for sure that it was him and they're still gone. And like, this doesn't make me happy. Like, what do you, what do you think you're doing? Right. Exactly. Like he, he kind of expects to do this victory lap. And first off, they're like, okay, well, you don't understand it from the black perspective, which is we're just throwing another black guy in jail. Yeah. Which isn't to say, like, a black man can't be a serial killer. You can be whatever you want to be, kids. You heard it here first. <laughs> you can be as much of a murderer as you... Please, oh, I should probably cut that out. <laughs> I should probably, probably shouldn't have that on the show. Uh, ignore what I just said. But, no, so they, they, they... First off, it's like, okay, so you racially profiled and you expect us to give you a high five. And secondly, uh, the DA's office didn't, didn't uh, pin him for the crimes. No. Like they didn't, they didn't like, they didn't want to pin him for those crimes. So those murders are technically unsolved. So what exactly are you celebrating Holden? <laughs> yeah. Well, and then the naivete of Holden as well. Like he's also naive because he's like, you know, I'll come back. We're going to come back and we're going to look into this because Jim has found, um, you know, evidence that there were two older males who were involved with some of these young children who they think may have been responsible for some of these killings. Because the number got up to like 30-something, and Wayne never admitted guilt to any of them, and they only pinned two of the killings on him. And those two and were they, adults. They, those two were adults. So there was still the question of like all of these kids who clearly who were who knew each other and were friends were killed by someone. And we we still are not sure if it was Wayne or not. Um, and then just that complete deflation of, you know, he gets on the plane and Tench just fired up and ready to go. Cause it means he gets to go home and the head of the FBI now has, you know, a success story and Holden's like, wait, so we're not coming back. We're just leaving. It's like, yep, our job is done. It's team America. Basically <laughs> it's the opening sequence of team America where they save the day. Well, and that's the thing. There's something like not just narcissistic, but painfully naive about Holden for as for as close as he gets to this darkness that he supposedly studies he doesn't understand I think the thing that's sort of childish about Holden is that he 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 only thinks of evil in sort of these stark monstrous terms and he doesn't look for the banality of evil he doesn't understand like oh what I'm doing is like the FBI is not a monstrous organization in this instance but we're leaving these people to fend for themselves. We are all, all the only thing anyone cares about is their own self-interest. So yeah. the head of the, you know, their boss cares about scoring a victory. The FBI cares about the positive PR. Tench cares about getting back to his family. 
no one really cares about the victims. It was never about the victims. And it's sort of childish for Holden to being, think like, I'm a hero. Like you're not a hero. Like you, and, and, and there was, and if anything, your time in Atlanta should have, you know, killed any idealism that you had. And that's not to say that idealism is wrong, but you're going to be a lot more, you're going to be a lot happier if you're a pragmatist. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm curious to see how that changes him going forward. I mean, we know that he's based on uh, John Douglas, whose own mental breakdown is what caused him to step away from doing the job. Um, And they kind of brought that in with the end of season one. So I'm curious to see how that shapes Holden going forward. If it continues to be naive or, um, you know, if he just kind of embraces the coldness of, of what they're doing, or if he convinces himself like, well, you know, we can't help the victims, but if we can stop future serial killers, then maybe, maybe that's good enough. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing, like, because Holden doesn't really ha- like the, the, the person with the, the clearest sort of, Oh, this is where it goes in season three is Tench. Uh, yeah. Cause he has kind of a, I, I would say a cliffhanger of sorts. Yeah. Um, there's a clear line of what he, what, what that character does next. It's a little fuzzier for Wendy and, and Holden. Um, to see what happens with them. Like, what do they want? Where do they go? Um, I can also see, you know, you know, if, if this season goes forward, I can see like a kind of a big time jump. And right now the behavioral sciences unit is still fairly small. I would not be surprised if we come in, in season three and it's like bustling and they're trying to, you know, send out, you know, there's sort of like, we're not even in the field anymore. We're sending out other agents. Cause that's briefly brought up here. Like, where their boss yeah. says, I see, you know, sending out, you know, four teams of two, like into the field to do these interviews. Um, like that instead they become sort of functionaries rather than the field agents. Well, and I'm also curious to see, I really enjoyed um, when Wendy and uh, Greg, Greg, Greg uh, when Wendy and old Greg uh, went and did the interview and Wendy saw firsthand that like you can't, First of all, this was the first time we had ever seen them try someone try and stick to that questionnaire. Yes, because <laughs> Holden and Tench throw it out so quickly, and she gets and pissed like, that like, why yeah. did you stick to this questionnaire? <laughs> and then they're trying, and the guy is just fucking with them, and it's just not working. And then she's like, "All right, well, I'm going to open up." So I thought that was really interesting. But then, how do you apply that going forward? How do you teach people how to do that? Um, you know, is Ford going to find? Uh, you know. Um, someone uh like a uh, uh like an apprentice or something mm-hmm. to to teach or is it become something where the the new the new version of the behavioral science unit doesn't resemble what it was like basically you have more functionaries trying to you know force things into this narrow box like basically the bureaucracy takes over and they feel like they're actually not getting answers but everyone looks busy yeah yeah, and we've got, I mean, like John Wayne Gacy. Um, there are a number of others in Douglas's book that uh, um, they can cover. So I'm curious to see where that goes. But, I mean, the heart of the show is is Wendy, Holden, and Bill. Um, so as long as that's there, you know, I'm game. So I think, you know, a good this might be a good conversation. It's like, does Mindhunter continue? Yes, I think it does. You think it does. All right. Well, I, yes. I, I will, I will, I, I will take the opposite view, but why do you think it continues? So, I mean, Fincher has said he has a five-year plan, blah, blah, blah. I think that it just makes good business sense for Netflix to keep David Fincher happy. And clearly this is his baby. Like, as we've seen, this isn't just a show where he comes in and like kind of on house of cards, like he directed the first two episodes and he was involved in season one. And then he was a little involved in season two. And then he had just kind of backed away. Um, but he's essentially the showrunner of the show. And to me, what spoke volumes was when World War Z2 fell apart, um, it seemed to me that uh, Netflix just came up to Fincher and said, what do you want to make? We'll make whatever you want. And now he's making that movie Mank with uh, Gary Oldman. And if they cancel Mindhunter, you know, that runs the risk of pissing him off. And so seeing like, so Netflix was very, very, um, uh, strict when it came to how they rolled out season two of Mindhunter in terms of the marketing and uh, who was allowed to review what and how many episodes press got and things like that. And some people thought it was just Netflix being Netflix, but it's not something Netflix had ever done before. And knowing that Fincher has gotten into fights with studios before over him wanting to take control of the marketing, it just felt to me that like 
this was just his vision for how to market the show. This is what he wanted to do. He didn't want to have a ton of reviews going up before the season premiered. He wanted to release images by sending press on like scavenger hunts. So that's why press got like these kind of like, like that was an investment too. Like it wasn't like Netflix, like put all the press images up on their website. They created a whole, whole new website where you had to scour to find the mine hunter images and stuff. So that to me was an investment. So, I mean, we've seen Netflix cancel a lot of shows. I mean, I guess it's entirely possible that they do cancel this one, but I, I don't think, I think they want to keep David Fincher happy, especially as they're looking towards building out their film side. You know, they've got Alfonso Cuaron and they've got Steven or not uh, Steven Spielberg. No, Martin Scorsese, uh, Noah Baumbach. I think they just want to build up the best stable of uh, great filmmakers they can and, I think they're willing to keep David Fincher happy to a point. Sure. Um, by the end of the day, like how, ha- like the thing about Mindhunter is that it doesn't do anything. If, if the, if the, if the show, so if the show's only purpose for Netflix is to keep David Fincher happy, that is a very high price tag to keep one filmmaker happy because at the end of the day, like Mindhunter is not a cheap show. <laughs> I mean, it's not the most expensive show, but it doesn't look cheap. Um, so, you have a show that doesn't look cheap. It's a show that isn't going to roll out yearly, probably. I doubt we'll see season three, if there is a season three, before uh, 2021. And then the question is, you know, with, with Mindhunter, if it's not a popular sensation like Stranger Things, and if it's not like an Emmy darling, like, what do you do with it? And it's, again, if it's just to keep Fincher happy and to, like to have it in your stable... That's fine. But that's a big commitment, again, to keep one director happy. Um, and again, and also, like, can you really keep David Fincher locked down? I mean, Mank will get finished. It'll probably be released, you know, sometime. I mean, if, if they're already filming it or not, I don't know. I don't know when it's going to be released. Um, they're supposed to start filming it later this fall. Okay, so probably maybe 2020. Yeah. Um, the question Which means is, that if Fincher is going to be as involved in Mindhunter season three as he was in one and two, Mindhunter season three won't start filming until the very end of 2020 at the earliest, possibly 2021. Right. Which and then it wouldn't you won't be get released. it until 2022. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Again, now again, that maybe that's good for Netflix to have it all spread out like that. I just feel like it's a show. It just feels like a show that gets canceled. I guess maybe that's it. And that's not a good reason. It just feels like a show where they're like, yeah, people like it, but they don't love it. And it's not really moving the needle on subscriptions. And, you know, we like David, but he's very demanding. So maybe we just cut our losses and, you know, there are other, you know, notable filmmakers in the sea. Yeah. I mean, it's, I'm being a bit of a cynic. I know I would love it. (laughs) Look, if they can get five seasons of Mindhunter and take it to the end, br- brilliant. I would love that. I don't know if they'll make it. It also seems to be fairly popular. I mean, that's the other thing is, like, we don't know how popular it is. And I wasn't saying, like, they would renew it only to make David Fincher happy. They would mm-hmm. renew it if it had the numbers and to make David Fincher happy. Right. Um, so, I mean, who knows if yeah. – I mean, I, I love it. I love it. I also just, but I also think it's not a show that's designed to be loved to be. No, it's very prickly. It's very, it's again, we were, you know, um, didn't you have a story about someone that you were talking to about Mindhunter? So I wasn't talking to someone. I was at dinner. Uh, and in the booth behind me, this, uh, adult male, probably early thirties was at dinner with his parents, uh, who were older and it piqued my interest because the, the, the thing that I heard the guy say to his parents was, I hooked up with this girl and afterwards she said she wasn't into my body type. And I thought that was a weird thing to say to your parents. (laughs) 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 And he's a husky guy. So I was like, all right. Um, But they started talking about Mindhunter and the parents were like, yeah, we can't really get into it. It's kind of weird. And I started thinking about like, it doesn't give you that hit that you get at the end of like law and order or, you know, it's definitely not in say yes or anything like that. And as you and I have just spent the last hour talking about is it's a very character centric show. It's much more about the themes and the people than it is about resolution. The season two ends with the case unresolved. They caught the guy, but they're unconvinced that he's the only guy. And not only that, but 
they pretty much closed the door on ever coming back to it. It's like, yep, we know he's probably not the only person that killed people. There's probably people who killed a lot of these children. We will never come back to investigate it because that's the way this bureaucracy works. And that's not satisfying. And so I think people looking for, um, I don't know, what was that, like the following, you know, kind of serial killer shows like that or things with blood and murder um, or things that like, you but know, it's have not a big be CSI, which is kind of like a yeah. gory show in its own way. It is. Yeah. Uh, but it's not that. No. So that that was my story. <laughs> but that's that's uh, just, uh, you know, uh, just anecdotal. But. I would not be surprised to learn that there are people out there who gave my hunter a shot and were like, eh, it's not for me. No, that wouldn't surprise me either. But I think the people that do love it, like have like no reservations about it. Like I, I know personally, unless this show just really starts to get bad, um, I'm in it till, till it finishes. Yeah. Same here. Um, so yeah, uh, season two, I thought was again, an improvement on season one. Uh, I'm excited to see where they go in season three. I, I would be shocked. I'd be surprised if they canceled it before season three, but it basically my feeling is if they renew it for a season four, it'll probably get a season five and finish if they yeah. don't. But so really after season three is the one where you have to wait for it. Cause I think it will get a third season. Yeah. And I wouldn't be shocked to learn that Fincher lets someone else kind of take the reins while he works on Mank. Mm-hmm. Um, Carl Franklin, let, let Carl Franklin do it. That he did a fantastic job. I wouldn't be mad about it. Yeah. Um, you know, or uh, Holt McCallany hinted at there's a location change for season three. He mm-hmm. said that, uh, you know, they would be they've been shooting it in Pittsburgh, but he hinted that they would be shooting season three elsewhere. So I wonder if that means, you know, Fincher shoots Mank this fall and he shoots a long time because he does a lot of shots. And Mank doesn't seem like a movie that has a ton of locations. So say he wraps that in the first quarter of 2020. That means he could be in post-production on that and in development or pre-production on season three of Mindhunter working with the writer's room at the same time if they moved Mindhunter season three production to somewhere in California. Right. Um, and if he's working at Netflix, the offices of Netflix, he can go right next door to the writer's room and talk to them and, and work on fleshing out season three and then possibly be ready to shoot that while, uh, you know, I assume that Mank will be an award season release in 2020. I would be shocked to find that it's not. Um, so, you know. Who knows? But yeah. that's that's kind of my best guess at this point. Yeah, same. All right. Uh, so that's us on Mindhunter Season 2. Let's, uh, let, unless you have anything else to add, let's roll into Recently Watched. Nope, let's do it. All right, what do you got? So I finally saw A Simple Favor, ah. which everyone's been talking about because it's on, I think it's on Hulu and Amazon right now. Yeah, there's a sort of a sharing agreement. Titles, A lot of titles cross over between Hulu and Amazon. Yeah. Uh, and I had heard that it was kind of bonkers and I saw the trailers and I was like, oh, it's kind of Gone Girl-esque where Anna Kendrick may or may not be a good person. Um, it is much more crazy than I ever imagined it could be. <laughs> it is packed with twists and turns and craziness and it all works like beautifully, far better than it should. Um, and like it, I was interested to check it out because it's Paul Feig and I've liked his work as a director, but he's directed comedies up until this point. And this one tells the line between comedy and thriller. And it which is a very weird mashup. It's super weird, but it works so well. There are so many ways this movie could have gone wrong. There are so many ways the tone could have been off. And I think it's a testament to Feig's work to um, Anna Kendrick and Blake Lively's performances that it works as well as it does. Kendrick in particular um, is just walking a, tightrope of tone in this movie between thriller and comedy and she does it so well and it's so wonderful um and it's just a joy to watch like it's a delightful film and it's really handsomely crafted um you know there is a ton of craziness but it it moves so quickly which i think is another one of uh it's positive aspects i think the fact i think the editing is really good and the fact that it moves so quickly you don't have time to stop and be like wait what the fuck was that or like what was that all about um, it just keeps going. So uh, I would highly recommend it. It's just a really, really fun watch. Yeah, I, I would share that recommendation. Uh, I watched it at the end of last year with my wife, and we both really enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, for me, so I la- in the last episode I talked about one movie I watched on the plane ride. I'll tell you about another movie I watched on a plane ride, Alita Battle Angel. Um, which So I, I had missed that screening. I actually missed both screenings because I was on another trip earlier in the year. But I saw Alita Battle Angel, 
And um, because I had heard that it wasn't terrible. And it's true. It's not terrible. Like, I, I wasn't really that enthused based on the trailers. Um, and Robert Rodriguez isn't really a director that gets me going. Uh, and I think James Cameron, even as a storyteller, like, I think we can respect the legacy of James Cameron while also recognizing some of his weaknesses. And I was just worried, like, oh, Ghost in the Shell sucked. This is probably not going to be good. I actually really liked Alita. I didn't love it, but I liked it because I think it's a film with a lot of ambition to it. Um, it's basically like three hours of movie packed into two hours. Uh, it is, it makes no apologies for its steampunk craziness. It just, we, this is steampunk. We are going for it and just kind of rolls with it. And I like the fact that rather than trying to stop and explain its world building, it just does it and tells its story, even though the story that's trying to tell is like, there are bounty hunters, but there's also a game called Motorball. And then there's like a city in the sky that people want to get to. And then they're like, you know, there's there's a guy stealing parts and there, it's, there's a conspiracy. And it's there's so much story into this movie that it can't contain. And it ends and it's like setting up another movie. Like it can't even really <laughs> tell its own story. It ends on a cliffhanger. It basically just, end, it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, this on the one hand, it'd probably be too expensive for a series, but it should probably be like a six episode series. But I, as a movie, I kind of liked it. I liked that it has like a robo Jeff Fahey in it. I thought like, oh, and he has cyborg dogs and like, it's a, it's kind of a bonkers goofy movie, but it, it carries itself with such confidence that I, I, I was having fun with it. I, it had my interest the whole time. Um, and yeah, I, I, I think I, I will always sort of side with films that have an overabundance of ambition rather than films that aim small. Um, not to say like, Oh, if you aim small and you do the one thing really well, that, I mean, that's, that deserves to be applauded, but I would rather see a movie that's ambitious and doesn't totally come together than a film that plays it safe and is instantly forgettable. So I, I was, I was with Alita battle angel, uh, definitely worth a rental. So interesting. I had fun with it. I will check it out on that note. I also watched mortal engines, which I also thought was ambitious and had good world building, but was ultimately not very good. Yeah, I'm kind of now that it's on HBO, I kind of want to watch it. So. That's how I watched it. Yeah, and you'll know the parts where you can be like, eh, I'm gonna check Twitter for a minute. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's it's I will say the one thing that struck me most about Mortal Engines was that it is far more colorful than the trailers and marketing materials would lead you to believe. I thought it was like this desert wasteland Mad Maxi thing, but it's mm -hmm. a really colorful movie. Yeah, which was a nice surprise. It is a nice surprise. Um. I'm kind of wondering, like, even though because Peter Jackson produced it and they kind of sold it on his name, on his name, uh, it, it feels like he made it. It feels it, like he made it, but just didn't it put his name like on he, it. I mean, I'm sure Christian Rivers was a lead director, but it feels like Peter Jackson was basically co-director. And I know he directed Second Unit on it, so mm. he was there the whole time. So it's basically his next movie, kind of. Kind of. All right. Well, I'll give it a shot. Um. Okay, well, uh, we don't have any reader hot takes for you this week, but again, if you have a hot take, uh, if you like the show, go on iTunes, leave us a review in your hottest film or TV-related take, and we will engage with it on the show. Uh, we're also planning to do a mailbag episode next week, uh, or we're going to record it next week and bank it because we are going to be at TIFF. Um, so, but we are recording a mailbag episode. So if you have any question, uh, just message us on Twitter. And we will answer it on that episode. Uh, so to keep up with this podcast, you should follow us on Twitter. Adam, where can we find you on Twitter? At Adam Chitwood. And you can find me at Matt Goldberg. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back with you next time. <laughs>